The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the seventh chapter. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears, and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with oil. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who touching him, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, for whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Shusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Many of you have met my brother, uh, my brother Justin. He and his fiance Erica along with her two kids, used to be members here at Salem before they moved across the Bay Bridge to Centerville. A bit of a longer drive. Uh, Erica's got two kids uh, from a previous relationship, Kira and Camden. They're great kids. Some of you might remember them. I like them a lot. Now, Cam can sometimes be a little shy, as kids are. And a few weeks ago at our family's Memorial Day cookout, uh, I asked Cam for a hug, and he came over somewhat reluctantly. I could tell he probably didn't want to give one. So I invited him to sit down next to me, and I told him that he, if he ever did not want to hug me, that it was okay. It's his body. He could do with it what he likes. And then I offered a high five instead, to which he smiled and reciprocated. Now, I know what a lot of people think. It's just a hug. It's over in a few seconds. He should stop being a snotty kid and just do it. 
And maybe there was a time when I would have thought the same. But in the last few years, I've read so much about the human body, its strengths and its weaknesses, its frailties and its shames. And one of the themes that continues to come up is how kids can develop images and habits of the body at a young age. When we tell a child that they need to hug someone, no matter what the circumstances are or who the person is, it gives them the impression that their body is not their own. That in order to fulfill the requests of someone else, they must share their body even if they don't want to. Now, I have no intention of condescending the far more experienced parents in this room who might not agree. But this reality has, has, this has really stuck in my mind, especially as I have tried to learn more about the theology of the body. Now, let's be clear about one thing. We as a people do not know how to talk about the human body. We do not know how to talk about our own body, and we do not know how to talk politely about the bodies of others. And because we do not know how to talk about bodies, we either enslave them, sexualize them, shame them, or kill them. How many of you in here can honestly say that you have been happy with your body your whole life? I know I can't. The body is a gift from God. It's a temple even that functions well at times and unwell at others. It is a beautiful thing. It is an imperfect thing, but it is our own thing, and its well-being is between us and God. No one can dictate it for us, and no one ever should. Yet inevitably, others always do. If the news this week should teach us anything, it said so many people have poor judgment about what should happen to the bodies of others. The Brock Turner rape case was sad enough. The letter written by the Jane Doe survivor detailing what he did to her was equally devastating. And, and what amazed me is it pushed so many women in my own life to share story after story of the ways they were judged by their own body or degraded for it or made to feel uncomfortable because of it. When there is a void in human communication, that void is usually filled by the darkness of verbal filth. In the case of the body, particularly the female body, the grotesque language we use has consequences, such as the weak punishment for rapists. And this is because we don't take the body seriously. We don't take seriously the stories of those whose bodies have been physically, verbally, or psychologically assaulted. Today's gospel is what writer Mary Gordon would call the Sabbath of the skin. It is a tale of a woman who shares her body with Jesus in a very real and intimate way. Yet, and it's important to note, intimate is not synonymous with sexual. Thousands of years of Christian scholarship have tried to sexualize this woman as a prostitute, where scripture makes no mention of her as such. I suppose it's just easier for male theologians to understand women as objects, because we cannot believe that Jesus would let her do that to his feet. In truth, we know very little about this woman. This is the only time she appears in scripture. The writer of Luke's gospel gives her no agency. All that's told is she's a sinner. Jesus implies in his parable that the balance of her sins is great. 
And she uses her body to anoint the prophet Jesus as a way of asking for forgiveness. And not only does she do this, but she does it in the company of men, surely knowing that it would bring scorn upon her. And of course it does. For she becomes a pawn in the eternal cat and mouse game between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisee Simon seeks to dismiss her because of her scandalous behavior. To him, he sees her not as a person, but as someone who is beneath him. Someone not worthy of Jesus' attention, and certainly not worthy of the touch of his body. In this exchange, Simon is trying to regulate the bodies of both Jesus and the woman. He does it not because he cares about her sins or Jesus' teaching, but because he wants to win points in an argument. Simon does not see the woman. Jesus sees the woman. And he forces Simon to see the woman and confront the fact that her life, her sins, and her body matter to him. He lauds her for seeing his body as that of a prophet and for paying him such a high respect. While a supposedly knowledgeable Simon has barely welcomed Jesus into his own home. Jesus forsakes the social mindset that would devalue this woman and her body in favor of extending her the grace that we all know so well. He values that she has embraced him at his feet, the dirtiest and most offensive part of the body, while Simon cannot even offer the most common of courtesies. In forcing Simon to see this woman, Jesus reveals himself as one who stands with the marginalized. And just as this woman was denigrated for her body, we know what will happen to the body of Christ. I don't want to turn this sermon into the passion, but Jesus' own body was destroyed in the most brutal way possible because he identified with those whom society did not care for. He put his own personhood on the line because he believed so passionately in his own teachings. And it cost him his life. He has risen again and he will come again in that broken body. But until that day, we remember that every time we take communion, we are partaking in the despoiled, violated, and brutalized body of Christ. And that is sacred to us. The body of Christ is not only the meal that we consume, it is the definition of the church. In honoring Jesus' body, we should also honor the bodies of all of God's created. Yes, it makes stories like that of a rape survivor and those who perished at a club in Orlando that much more painful. For when the body is violated, Christ cries. And when the body is profaned, Christ is quick to defend. All bodies are sacred in their own unique way. We must be comfortable to speak on that and to speak in their defense. And we must be comfortable to understand that your body, your individual body, each one of you, is sacred to God. You are created in the image of God and you are loved. When someone tries to critique your own body, I encourage you to fall back into the loving, protective arms of our Savior. 
It is he who loves our bodies and he who forgives the sins of our bodies. And when our bodies fail for good, it is because of what Jesus did with his own body that we may receive new and eternal life. Amen.